Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm with Jihad Ali. And we are so excited to welcome uh, to Democracy-ish for the very first time, Jean Guerrero, who is the author of Hatemonger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda, as well as a columnist at the LA Times. Um, Waj, you continue to bring us just the most brilliant voices to Democracy-ish, so I want to turn it over to you uh, to do a more in-depth intro of our esteemed guest. Yes, you know, you shall read her amazing columns at the LA Times, where often, but not always, she talks about why this country has to invest in this magical group called la, 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 the Latinos, uh, ah. Latinx, if you will. Yes, yes, they apparently are diverse. They all don't think oh. the same, believe it or not. No? And Yeah, I'm serious. And also, as a result of this expose, hate monger, like you mentioned, this book, that's when I first discovered Jean. I discovered her. Before <laughs> me, she was no one. Uh, Thank you, Columbus. It, it was this in de- in-depth look at what makes a Stephen Miller, how dangerous he is, and how this white nationalist and white supremacist ideology now has become so mainstream, Danielle, to the point where, you know, Steve Bannon's in the news because he's going to turn himself in on Thursday. That's the big news. But what people aren't talking about is his batshit crazy, like, you know, uh, like, you know, uh, I am the strong, like, defender of democracy statement where he talked about Soros-backed DA. The Soros-backed DA is basically a very casual way of saying the Jews, which is a white supremacist conspiracy theory that is so open now, so normalized, Danielle, that nobody's talking about it, that Steve Bannon talked about the Soros-backed DA. So how do we get to this point where Stephen Miller's vision of a hateful America has gone mainstream? So I thank Gene for doing all the hard work, the investigative uh, reporting, putting herself out there making herself into a target oftentimes, and also posting amazing constant, uh, content on Instagram where she's longboarding uh, and she's like lives it like this really cool life. If you want to feel like you can live vicariously cooler through someone in LA, <laughs> just go on Jean's Instagram page. Because I'm like, she longboards, she goes to these awesome raves, and she's an LA, LA Times journalist. She's made it. Oh, I'm so coming Jean, to LA. So Jean, welcome. Forget welcome it. to Democracy Issue. <laughs> 
No, I just post that content as like a rebellious thing where I try to pretend that my life does not revolve around work, but the reality is that it does. Uh, you know, well, you're, Jean, you're I fooling want, I, all of us. Yeah, you're fooling all of us. You're much cooler than all of us. Look, I, I want to get your thoughts on this. I was talking to a, a former guest on our show, the the superstar journalist Maria Hinoosa, Pulitzer Prize winner. And, you know, I, I was just interviewing her. I said, let's just do free association. I, I'm going to say a word and you give me your first thought. So I said Latino. And she said conservative. And she said the future of Latinos in America, she fears, is conservative. Your response. I mean, it's a real worry. I, I feel like on the one hand, the media is overly obsessed, I think, with the Republican Latino. This idea that Latinos are trending towards the GOP, I think, is um, overly stated and overly focused on in the media um, because people are so shocked by it. But people from Latino communities know that this is you know, this 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 is a faction of the Latino community in the United States. Um, and and it's a, it, like basically it's something that's been imported from Latin America because you have countries across Latin America that are pigmentocracies where light skinned people are, you know, in government positions. They're they're the ones. Oh, this first time I ever heard pigmentocracy. That's that's awesome. I mean, it's just it, it, it's 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 this long. I mean, even even the the like a lot of the havoc that the U.S. has wrought in Central America, in Mexico, like a lot of it has been by utilizing these pigmentocracies where um, there are, you know, they, they create alliances with light-skinned elites to oppress Black and Indigenous communities through industries that our government continues to invest in, through um, the militaries that we provide, that we arm and provide resources to. Um, and it's just this ongoing, um, displacement, uh, eradication, um, and, 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 and people have come here fleeing and a majority of the people who've come to the U S to the U S fleeing these realities in Latin America are, or in the, in the past have, have been, um, people who were targeted, but you do have some of the more, you know, sort of right leaning, the, the people who've always supported these, um, authoritarians, these right-wing militaries, these right-wing leaders in these countries who come here as well and who bring those ideologies here. So when I hear Maria Hinojosa say that she thinks of, um, you know, right-wing Latinos, when she thinks of Latinos, I, I mean, that's just a reality. That's that's mm. just something that is a reality, but I think it's over. we, we overly focus on it in the media, I think. Um, anyway. I think, you know, as a as a way to consistently pander to the right, which is what I think that mainstream media does, um, unlike Steve Bannon and his and his you know anti Semitic notions of this liberal press that is run uh, by the Jewish establishment and elite, um, I have found that over the last six years, and I'm certain that you have too. We have seen this desire of the <clears throat> both sidesism, right? This 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 idea of neutrality. And so whenever there is a story where we can get to cover, you know, the rise of the Republican mind or who is the Republican Latino, you know, they will dive into this as, as this juicy bit, you know, to understand uh, what this group is, but also as a way to really just, you know, 
I, I, I want to say bring voice to to hatred. But I what I want the question that I have for you with regard to this is that, you know, when you hear people like a Steve Bannon, a Stephen Miller, a Donald Trump, the way in which Donald Trump came into power was by mm. talking about, you know, Mexicans being rapist, was talking about, you know, the invasion and these caravans. How is it, Gene, that there would still be roughly about 15 percent or so of the Latinx population that says that's my guy? How you know, how how does that how does that work? I mean, a lot of it is machismo, just this, this, this ability to relate to um, men who are breaking the rules and deleting in this very aggressive way. I, I just found out um, a few days ago that my dad is once again a Trump supporter, and it makes no sense to me because he is somebody who could lose his green card um, under these denaturalization task forces at the Trump administration. Um, was was behind but but it's it's this it's it's you know an ability to feel superior it's an ability to mm. feel like you're in power it's an, an ability to feel like you have a measure of control when you experience um when your community is experiencing chaos your community is experiencing continued marginalization this idea this ability to to feel like maybe if you ally yourself with this person this trump person um that you'll be spared in some way, which obviously has not proven to be the case. There have been a number of tr Trump supporting Latinos who have faced deportation. Um, but this phenomenon explains why, you know, when you look at the Border Patrol, it's more, it's an agency that is dedicated to, you know, ex keeping people out, keeping Mexicans, keeping Central Americans, keeping anyone out of the United States that these white supremacists don't want here. Um, and it's majority, it's 50, it's more than 50% Latino. And it's because it's a, it's a way of gaining power or a sense of control over, over one's life and a feeling of like being able to, to maybe, maybe you're going to be spared or your family is going to be spared. Um, but I like all, all along the border, like there's this, all, I, I've, there's this idea among Latinos, like, like we, when you when you're coming to a port of entry, um, the hope is that you're going to encounter a white border yeah. officer um, because the the white border officers don't necessarily um, feel like they have something to prove. And then there's this idea that the the brown border officers um, are going to go out of their way to be a, extra cruel. I mean, it's sort of a stereotype, but it, it's like pervasive across the border community. Uh, among Latinos, this idea like let's hope that we don't encounter a Latino border patrol agent because they might exert um, more, they might abuse their authority. They might be more inclined to abuse their authority. I don't know how much truth there is behind that, but anecdotally, that that's something that's embraced. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. 
Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. You know, being the superior brown who is closer uh, to whiteness uh, for sake of protection, for sake of rank, you know, that's something that rings true in many of our communities. So what you were just talking about, I'm like, yep, South Asians, Asians, we're the good one. And you, you, you run towards whiteness and you run far away from blackness as possible. So you're the good one in America because of how different you are from the blacks and how close you are to the whites. And, and, and you're, the phenomenon that you're describing, I remember it was crystallized for me. I went to a Trump rally. I covered a Trump rally about two, three weeks before the election, 2016 election. I was in Maine, which is like the whitest place on earth. If you've never been to Maine, like if you go there as like a brown person, like I think they want to touch you. They're like, are you real? I'm like, I'm real. I exist. And, you know, I was talking to a lot of these women and a lot of it was it was the diversity of whiteness. Every white you can imagine was there at the Trump rally. But I, I talked to a Latina. So I'm like, I got to talk to you. I got to interview. Why are you here? I'll never forget what she said. She goes, I'm from Honduras and, and I'm an immigrant and I'm here because I came here the right way. Exactly. And Donald Trump is going to punish all those who cheated and cut ahead of the line. And if Hillary Clinton wins, I'm going to go back to Honduras. And I'm like, isn't Honduras like the murder, murder capital of the world right now? She goes, I'd rather live there than a society where a Clinton comes here and gives amnesty to all these other Latinos who came here before me. I'm like, but he called you a rapist and a criminal. Still, he's not talking about me. But you, you know what? I, I want to say something about that because this, our problem in America, and I want to say our problem, but when I'm really talking about white people, um, white people's issue in America is that every group that is non-white is all lumped together. Right. So if you are, if you are Latinx, then everybody's Mexican, right? If in, 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 in white America's eyes, what I have come to learn, obviously by virtue of being with friends and in the world, um, is that there are so many layers and distinctions, right? And countries and dialects and all of these things. And so when Donald Trump is specifically talking about Mexicans, everybody else who ain't Mexican is like, he ain't talking about me. Right. Like, it's like that, that Chris that, Rock that, bit. Remember right? that Chris it's Rock like, bit? Yeah, exactly. Yes, I do. And it's like, he's like, he ain't talk. He ain't talking about me. I'm not, I'm not a Mexican. Right. And so they the, all Latinos as Mexicans, like the Mexican is like the bad word that they, they see all Latinos as Mexicans. And a lot of Latinos don't understand that. And I think that's the issue. 
Well, it's also like when he says Arabs and they're like, I'm not Arab. I'm like, no, he think he's talking about you. Bigots aren't nuanced. You know, it's not like, oh, he didn't <laughs> right. mention else. I'm El Salvadoran. I'm like, bro, they don't care. Uh, like to them, I'm a Mexican. And so this this <laughs> lumping, right, where we are communities in particular, black, Latino, uh, South Asian, where we play divide and conquer gene, right? Do you think there's a moment here? And this is a strange thing to say. One of the positives of Trumpism, it, it just roll with me here, where the, the hate is so egregious. It's so open. It's so unsubtle that our communities that chase whiteness are saying, huh, they actually hate all of us. And we have to work in solidarity with other communities. Have you seen that shift in your reporting? And, and Latinos, as we have to say again, very diverse. But have you seen that shift, especially in the older generation where that light bulb has gone off? Absolutely. I mean, especially after the killing of George Floyd, I feel like a lot of Latinos mm. who were watching that video, they were reminded of what had happened to Anastasio Hernandez Rojas, who was a Mexican immigrant who similarly like was beaten was was killed to death um was killed to death he he similarly there was a mob of border officers um so a mob of white law enforcement officers who killed him um on, and it was captured on camera and he was screaming for his for help um and the cries when i watched um george floyd's killing um it reminded me of of Anastasio Hernandez Rojas's cries. And there were bystanders who were trying to talk sense into the law enforcement officers and nothing happened. And anyway, those echoes and, and seeing how the Trump administration was targeting um, racial justice pro protesters in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and how how connected all of that was with the targeting that Latinos experienced under the Trump administration um, and, and how, how Muslims were targeted. Like all of a sudden, all these echoes began to resonate with people, with Latinos. I think a lot of Latinos realized like we, we will never be safe. Our, our families will never be safe until all, you know, until all people of color in this country are safe. And I, and there was a reckoning with anti-blackness among Latinos that I had never seen before. Um, we had never spoken so openly in our communities about this anti-blackness that exists. Like even, um, you know, in, in my own family, my, my grandmother, um, she never speaks or she never used to speak about her, um, her mother who was, um, who was Afro Puerto Rican and she was designated as black in the U S census. And she insists, she insisted for a very long time that, that her mother was white and it was very important to her to see her mother as white. And in the aftermath of George Floyd, that, um, I, I initiated conversations with my grandmother and there were just a number of conversations in my family and in the community that led to, I think, an awareness of how toxic that has been and how, like, how that has disconnected us from our roots, our families, um, and made us more inclined to support policies and politicians that put us in, in harm's way and that deliberately uh, target us. You know, I, I, it's always so fascinating to me when I have traveled, but also when I speak to so many diverse populations, because like anti-blackness is just pervasive everywhere. 
there is really no place that you can actually go to, not even on the continent of Africa where skin bleaching is still very prominent, where you can go and anti-blackness is not prevalent, right? Like that is the the curse of white supremacy is that, mm-hmm. as Waj had said in the beginning, that the proximity to whiteness is what avails people of power, right? And and that is what that's how it has consistently been associated. And I'll say that, you know, my family is from Jamaica and growing and came to the United States in the 1970s. And growing up, I was always told, don't be like those black Americans. Mm. As if anybody would mm. be able to tell the fucking difference between <laughs> me and like somebody that and like somebody whose parents were born in the United States. Right. Like they, it made absolutely no sense. But much in the same way that you speak, Jean, about your grandmother, it was very important to my family at that time that the distinction be very clear in our minds who we were not, right, Mm -hmm. versus who we were. And so I wonder, as this country becomes browner, right, and and, uh, Maria Hinojosa and, and her statement about conservatism, what is it that you feel that the other party, that Democrats may be missing, right, in their inability to actually reach this very diverse, layered group of people that are becoming, that will at some point be the majority population. What are we missing in terms of the nuance around messaging? Because I'll tell you that translating things from English to Spanish ain't it. And it seems to be like the biggest lift that these groups are willing to do. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's two things. One is that they're not trying. I mean, and that's, that's one of the reasons I sort of push back against this idea of Latinos trending towards the GOP, because I feel like it fuels this apathy in the Democratic Party among Democratic leaders towards the Latino community. Like there's not going to be a return on investment if you try to communicate to them. Um, and I think that's just a huge missed opportunity because I, a majority of Latinos continue to we believe in racial justice. They they believe in community. They believe in a lot of the values that the Democratic Party claims to have. Um, and then the other thing is just representation, um, whether it's in politics or in entertainment. I feel like a lot of Latinos have like a serious um, cynicism when it comes to politics or participation in democracy. Like um, all of our communities. Yeah. And it's and it's because they don't see themselves reflected. They don't see they they don't see anything substantial happening to help our families. And so, I think like one of the biggest things for me is like I, that that gets me really upset with the Biden administration is is how lukewarm he has become on on immigration, which um, you know is not the number one issue for Latinos or for or for anybody, but. I would say that it's one of the few issues that actually does unite a majority of Latino communities uh, because most not, there's there's millions of Latinos who have who come from mixed status families and who have loved ones who could be um, subject to deportation. And so I think that if Biden were to act as boldly on this issue as 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 Trump did, but obviously in the opposite direction, then then that would be extremely energizing to young Latino voters. And we would see a a lot greater participation 
in, in elections and we would see greater faith in the Democratic Party. And, and, and to me, it's just really heartbreaking to see the Biden administration um, sort of like cowering and believing that this is an issue that's going to hurt him politically, when in fact, I think it's the opposite. Well, you know, it, it, your your statement makes me think of what I said on um, In the Thick, which uh, is hosted by Maria and Julio Ricardo Varela, who are also our guests. Go back and check out that episode when they were our guests. It was awesome. Is that we made a prediction and Maria and Julio at that time were like, oh, Biden and Democrats will tackle immigration. I'm like, you know, I felt like taking a drag out of my cigarette cynically <laughs> and just like, I'm like, listen. They're going to punt on immigration. Democrats have always been on, uh, punted on immigration with the, with the mainstreaming of white nationalism and the mainstreaming of uh, Latinophobia and, and, and the invaders and caravans. They're going to realize that, oh, if we actually put our equity in this issue, we're going to lose and we won't be able to pass Build Back Better or anything else. And the whites and uh, those people of color who think they're white, uh, they're not going to go along with it. So instead of investing our equity and flexing, let's punt this. Listen, don't you want Obamacare? Punt immigration. Don't you want the Inflation Reduction Act? Punt immigration. And I said, they're going to keep punting this again and again and again because they have not come up with a coherent message and they don't believe in the message and to sell it to the people. So instead, they're just going to rely upon this, let's be honest, white anxiety and Chet in the Rust Belt and the Latinas and uh, South Asians who think they're white to be like, ah, we're the good immigrants, and they're not—they're never ever gonna uh, respond robustly to this bullshit, bad faith, open xenophobia, nativism of the right, and they're just gonna slightly co-opt some of it, and then always, as we've seen Democrats do and Republicans do, when it comes on tough on crime and national security, they won't go that much against black folks now because they realize they they can't do it, but they'll bash the Latino immigrants, the Mexicans, uh, and so what what opening do they have, Gene? Where if you're listening to this, and I know you've written about this, you'll say, listen, it's actually in your interest, Democrats, to double down on this issue and you will be rewarded just like you've been rewarded on abortion and defending democracy. If you want to win over enough Latinos, and I'm glad you said this, not the number one issue. Latinos care about a whole bunch of other stuff like wages and, you know, health care and education. But you want to win over folks. It's in your interest to go all in on immigration reform. What will be your pitch? I mean, my pitch is they, they're so terrified of being painted as open borders, but they're going to be painted as open borders no matter what. That Regardless. is a separate issue. Like what they need to do is create a new narrative around people who live here and have been here for many years and who are, you know, who are, have been contributing, who were deemed essential workers so that they can continue to prop up our economy throughout the pandemic. Um, and, and, so one of the reasons they don't want to touch this is because this this narrative of pitting working class white people against immigrants has been so effective. This idea that Democrat Democratic elites are deliberately importing all of these people for quote unquote cheap labor. But like, what if we take these two groups that have been pitted against each other and we show that actually like their interests are aligned and that if we um, provide a pathway to citizenship for the more than 11 million undocumented people in this country, it's actually going to create greater economic equality overall. And the people who don't want a pathway to legalization, a pathway to citizenship for these undocumented people are those who want that inequality to stay. They want the cheap labor, because if you provide people with a pathway to citizenship, you're going to give them an opportunity to earn higher wages and to keep, compete less with 
um, the poorest of white people, uh, or, 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 you know, it's just, it's just going to create greater prosperity overall. And I think that that's such a simple message and nobody, I don't see anybody in the Biden administration making an effort to like show how this is just to, to create a new story around immigration and show how it's actually like the people who are undocumented deserve a pathway to citizenship. It will help everybody here. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know, it, it, to me, when I hear that, it is, it, it is what I have said time and time again, which is the very big difference that I see between Republicans and Democrats, which is that Republicans operate from a place of scarcity. There isn't enough. There, there isn't enough to go around. And so I must hoard as much as possible. And it is my God-given right as a white person in this country that I believe that I founded to have as much as I can, right? Whereas Democrats, you would think that the alternative would be the ideology of abundance and that they would go to this place to really say that we are the rich, the richest nation in the in the world, that we have more than enough to go around. And this is how, by virtue of giving pathways to citizenship, that we create like this this greater um, this this bigger and better country that has better production, that has, you know, that has better education education that has all of these other aspects, but they don't because they, they run from it to your, to your point about the idea that, oh, we're just opening up the borders and everybody and anyone can come in. And I just wonder, you know, when we look at the fact that where we are right now with white nationalism in this country is, in mm. fact, you know, the white lash to the Obama administration. But it is also the white lash to the announcement that our demographics were shifting. Right. That you were you were seeing, you know, preschool classes that were browner and blacker than, you know, that were that were coming up um, and that the timeline 2030, 2050 or whatever you were looking at was upon us. And that is what has freaked, you know, white people out. We're going to lose everything. And so I wonder, Jean, what does it look like, or is there an opportunity? And you mentioned it when you were speaking about George Floyd, real co coalition building. Mm. What does that look like? What are the obstacles 
to creating the coalition building between communities of color, between black people, right? And Latinx people that have similarities in their struggles. What does it, what does that look like? If at all, you see it possible. I do see it possible and I've seen it, you know, it has happened before. I think in California, when, when California experienced similar demographic change and white people became, or non-Hispanic white people became the minority for the first time in the 1990s, there was this huge um, anti-immigrant backlash and um, all these measures to oppress immigrant communities, uh, again, you know, attacks on bilingual education, on affirmative action, on social services for the undocumented. And, and the undocumented population, Latinos in California organized with Black and other communities, and they were able to fight back and they were able to turn the state deep blue and basically spell the death of the GOP's control over the state forever. Um, and I think the barriers to that are in part the fact that we have this huge disenfranchised population in the United States. In the 90s, it was different because you'd had the 1986 immigration reform where people were able to um, legalize their status. And they were able, what, in California, what we saw was a huge voter registration drive. Like Latinos were like, oh my God, our community is under attack. We need to ally with mm. the other communities of color and we need to vote and we need to get our parents to vote. We need to get our grandparents to vote, our kids to vote. Everybody needs to vote. And unfortunately, we can't have that at the same scale nationally because of the fact that we haven't had immigration reform. We haven't had a pathway to citizenship since 1986. And it's... That is absurd. That is absurd. You got to keep punting it to placate the economic anxiety of Chet in the Rust Belt, who thinks that Pedro, who comes here and works a job that he does not want to work in the fields that gives his local community in Ohio a chance to survive, he's the threat, right? It's one of those situations, you know, where where it seems common to us because we talk about it, Gene, but, you know, I have to mention, and, and, you know, I'm going to vomit in my mouth, but I have to. Like, you've written a book on Stephen Miller. It's called Hate Monger. I, I recommend people read it. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. We'll end on an empowering note, but I got to connect the dots for folks because <laughs> it's important if we, if we look at the threads, right, where it's been a divide and conquer technique by whiteness against our communities, where there are so many similarities when it comes to race and class, where when we, like you just mentioned, invest in coalition building, we win. We have the numbers, right? We build the Avengers and we fight back against Thanos and white supremacy. But very deliberately, and you've written about this, you know, Stephen Miller and that administration, the Trump administration, have been able to Trojan horse their ideology on the backs of Latinophobia, let's be honest, and, and, and the scary caravan of Mexicans coming, right? And oftentimes the rest of us go, oh, that's not us. And then you realize, oh, crap, it is us. Yeah, it can, is. You, can you tell people, because I still don't think people know, what is the end game of the Stephen Millers? If they had their druthers and if they had all the power, what is the end game and why should all of us be terrified about it and all of us need to, co uh, to come together to combat it? I mean, the end goal is to re-engineer the demographics of this country and to make this a majority white or all white country. And one of the mechanisms that they see for doing that, aside from really cruel and sadistic immigration policies, um, is violence. Like they actually promote extremism and violence um, to to do this. I mean, you don't see Stephen Miller talking about this openly, but the, when you look at the 
ideologies, the books that he's promoted, the books that he's been inspired by, like the Camp of the Saints, um, mm. which can you, is, can, you, can you tell people about that? Because most people don't know that both Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller have promoted this early 1970s fictional novel written by a Jean, Jean Raspail, this French white nationalist. Can you just tell people about that? They've openly promoted this while they're in the Trump administration. Can you just give the plot summary real quick? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's about, it's a dystopian fiction novel about the destruction of the white world by a, by, by refugees that are described as monsters, animals, beasts. They're, they're described in the most dehumanizing terms because the book's goal is to create uh, hatred and fear towards um towards refugees, um, towards brown people, basically. Like the, the, the idea of the book is that, and one of the most dangerous ideas of the book is that if you do not resist brown and black people with violence, then your civilization will be destroyed. Like you need to fight back with hatred and violence. And, 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 in, and that could include massacres, mass shootings. Um, that's an aspect of the book that I don't think is often discussed, but it, it's like the, the main characters who are supposed to be like who the, who the author clearly sympathizes with promote um, massacres of brown and black people. You know, what's always wild to me, but other than that, he's lovely. <laughs> other than that, other than that, He's a, he's a delight. One, Gene, <laughs> I, I need to give you like deep, like gratitude and applause for even going into a deep mm. dive on Stephen Miller and Donald Trump and white nationalism to give the rest of us an understanding and the information that we need about their agenda. Because I, I, I couldn't imagine wanting to live inside that man's ma- mind, uh, Miller's mind for like even a second. Um, I, I find him to be absolutely, um, terrifying the way that, you know, Dracula is. Um, but what what I find, you know, what what I want to say here, and I want to give you um, an an opportunity as, as we as we wrap up. Um, what do you think we are missing? Right, mm. like, what do you think that the media? I'll say this: that the media is missing about the rise of white nationalism in this country. About how, as Waj has said, you know. Steve Bannon has these statements that are then read on all of these, you know, news stations that are about the Sonos, the Soros agenda and about this, that and the other thing that are just calcifying white supremacy in our minds and normalizing it. So with your work on hate monger. What is it that you think mainstream media is missing mm. that we may still have the opportunity to open up people's eyes to now? I think the main thing is the fact that that so many people's lives are actually at stake. The fact that this is not a game, that this is not um you know, it's not a political game. It's not, it's, it's not even just about democracy. It's about like the, the end goal here is, is in many of these white supremacists mind to eliminate Brown and black people from this country by any means. Mm. And that, that is an existential threat to millions of people in this country. And, and I don't think that people in the, a lot of people in the mainstream media, in general, the mainstream media does not understand or does not feel the sense of urgency that communities of color feel and are not able to convey it to their audiences because they don't, 
they don't necessarily doesn't impact them. Yeah, yep. exactly. Um, so, so even, I, I don't know, I, I just, I just, I see it so often treated as, as, as a game and, and really it's, it's, it's a, it's a war. It's a war on our rights. It's a war on our safety and that sense of urgency. I just don't see it communicated and, and how many people's lives are actually at stake. You know, I, I, I want to end on an empowering note, if I may, and, and ask a final question, but I will say, I, I appreciate your writing, Gene, I appreciate you putting this out there, especially through the pages of LA Times and August Publication and the fact that you're very vocal about this. And I, and I remember just now what you were saying, uh, your Instagram. I, if I could get you like 100 more Instagram followers, I think this will be worth it for you. <laughs> but I remember you posted this, and this is not the final question I have, but just a comment or, or, or just a reflection that, you know, you posted to all your followers this text that you sent your mother. And you thought you were going to die for a second, like your plane was about to like fall apart. And we were like, holy crap. And so we followed your thread and we're like, oh, she landed. Everything's OK. But like, you know, it's like those final moments. You you and everyone else on the plane thought those were your final moments. And you shared yeah. your final text to the world. And your final text is like, F those fascists. And I'm like, Gene's a good person. Like the <laughs> fact that you like you have like limited time. Like what? what's my final message to the wor- world? Like we fought back against those fascists. F them. I'm like, Jean's a good person. She's a real one. She's a real one, that Jean Guerrero. Of all the things she could say, she, she goes off on that note. Um, but, you know, one way to fight back against fascists is to expose them like you have. But another way is to also invest in our communities and in, in empowering our communities. And you had this article uh, recently that came out of the LA Times where you make the case where if you want to help America, if you want to help democracy, if, if you want to help this multicultural coalition, you have to invest in Latinas. And Danielle and I have talked about on this show before, the base of the Democratic Party nationally is black women. You want to save America, invest in black women. Uh, black women have saved a country that oftentimes doesn't have its back, but they always have America's back. What's the case for investing in Latinas to invest in America? Mm. Well, I mean, it's similar. I mean, Latinas, when, when you invest in Latinas, Latinas invest in community, they invest in racial justice, they invest in economic equality, they reach out to the most marginalized in the community and try to lift them up. Um, this is, you know, this is, according to research that, that I cited in my, in my column, but um but Latinas saved California in the 1990s from the white supremacists who tried to take it over. They saved mm. California, in my opinion, from the recall election that we had uh, last year where um, anti-immigrant nativists uh, lifted up Stephen Miller's mentor, Larry Elder, to try to replace yep. um, Gavin A black Newsom man, and, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. <laughs> yeah, a black man who says that black people are more racist than white people and who has a lot of white fans. Um, he, I, there was a time when the polls showed that he actually might have a chance at becoming governor of California and Latinas organized their communities. They were knocking on doors, um, communicating the urgency of what was at stake as far, as far as his plans to scale back all of California's progress for immigrant rights, healthcare for the undocumented, um, investments in education, California as a sanctuary state, all of this was at stake. And Latinas once again organized their families, their communities, and and saved saved California. And so we've seen this happen again and again in, in California. And I think that this there is a case for this nationally, that when you invest in, in Latinas, you're investing in racial justice, you're investing in 
economic equality. Oh, Jean, we can't thank you enough for your time, for your work, um, for all of your writings. Um, and, and, and really are hopeful that when people listen to this episode of Democracy Ish, that they, you know, begin to really understand the complexity of uh, the Latinx community and the opportunity that there is for the multinational coalition building that is going to be needed in order for us to combat uh, the rise uh, of white supremacy, um, because we are in the fight for our lives. And I really hope that people are waking up to that uh, to that reality. Uh, thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Wajad Ali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, there is a country left. Inshallah.